Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhavatiam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yagna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatim descendants who are part of the Gabrielino Tongva and the Fernandeño Tatiavam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here and we are committed to lifting up their culture and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. My name is Bianca Collins, and I'm the inaugural director of public programs for Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. Tonight's program is co-presented with Experience ASU. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on social platforms at The Public Square, on podcast platforms and YouTube. So please subscribe and keep up with our latest programs. Our next program will be held in Bakersfield on Thursday, October 6th, where we'll be asking, can rural education survive the 21st century? Please join us online or in person to explore how rural schools can prosper. Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, Julian E. Barnes, national security reporter at the New York Times. We're in for an excellent discussion. Over to you, Julian. I'm excited to uh, speak with our three guests tonight. Um, I'm going to introduce them. Um, Sarah Imari Walker is an astrobiologist and theoretical physicist at Arizona State University. She's the deputy director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. She's associate director for the ASU Santa Fe Institute Center for Biosocial Complex Systems. Her work focuses on the origins and nature of life. She's an internationally recognized thought leader in the study of the origins of life, alien life, and the search for a deeper understanding of ourselves in our universe. Corey Gray is Scottish and Blackfoot and a member of the Siksika Nation of Alberta, Canada. He is a senior operations specialist at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory in Washington State, and I practiced many times today to get through that. <laughs> At LIGO, he has worked on teams to both build and operate gravitational wave detectors. He was part of the team that made the first direct detection of gravitational waves in 2016, for which the founders of LIGO were awarded the Nobel Prize. Corey is passionate about science communication, particularly for indigenous youth and other underrepresented groups. And he recruited his mother, Sharon Yellowfly, to translate the LIGO scientific documents into the Blackfoot language. Cherie Renee Thomas is an award-winning fiction writer, poet, and editor. Her work is inspired by myth and folklore, natural science, and the genius of the Mississippi Delta. 
She is co-editor of Africa Risen, A New Era of Speculative Fiction, and Trouble the Waters, Tales of the Deep Blue. Her fiction collection, Nine Bar Blues, was a finalist for the 2021 Ignite, Locus, and World Fantasy Awards. She is the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, associate editor of Obsidian, and also edited the two-time World Fantasy Award-winning Dark Matter anthologies. She lives in Memphis, Tennessee, near a river and a pyramid. <laughs> Thank you for being here. We'll start with some of my questions, and then later on, we'll invite you to uh, give us some questions online. Uh, we'll take them through the live chat in YouTube and here in Los Angeles at the microphone. But let's get started. Um, are we ready for first contact? Are we ready for aliens to visit Earth? There's, there's a lot in that question. Um, we'll get into various facets of the issue as the night goes on, but let's start with one fundamental part of the question. What would first contact be like? Will it go well or very, very bad? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Flip a coin. <laughs> um, uh, I think, so I have kind of a different view of first contact. I don't think we're going to discover alien life till we understand what life is. So mm -hmm. first contact's actually going to be with aliens we make in the lab. Um, and so I think from that perspective, what we really need to do is solve the origin of life if we ever want to make contact with alien life. And in that sense, it's coming to understand more about what we are. And so I always think of that as a hopeful thing for us to do. Um, because. I don't see how we can deal with a lot of the existential things we're dealing with unless we understand what we are. Corey, wh how do you think of a first contact with alien life? Is it going to go badly? Uh, yeah, that's a hard question to answer because just uh, when you have an idea of how immense the universe is and the uh, technology that would be needed to, to visit us for that first contact, it just seems like we would just be ants on the ground compared to these visitors. But with that said, uh, Blackfoot people have had that experience of first contact, and it didn't go well for us. I mean, many of, a lot of indigenous people did not fare well through first contact. Sure. I think that first contact requires us to relate to each other differently than we do right now. And so if we're gonna prepare for it, it means that we're gonna have to evolve, I think, as humans and how we interact with our resources that are already present on Earth right now. Um, and that, that to me is going to be quite a, <laughs> quite a challenge given our history. Um, as, as Corey said, there's lots of first contact stories already and a lot of science fiction as a field has used those stories mm. as a metaphor, as a symbol. So yeah, I think we have a lot of work on our hands. <laughs> so is there anything from the experience of first contacts between Earth cultures here, what you just mentioned, that can prepare us? Like, are we even going to get a chance to meet the aliens, or will the space-born smallpox wipe us all out yeah. before we get to <laughs> chat with them? But, but is there anything from our pretty negative experience here on Earth that would 
teach us how to do it differently with some other vo visitors? Uh, yeah, should I? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I mean, um, I'm a student of sci-fi. I'm a nerd of sci-fi. And when I think about a lot of these questions, I, I can go from either end, kind of like what Sarah was saying. I can be very optimistic and, and positive about what these, those interactions could be, or I could be completely negative and just, yeah, just, and just think, what would I do? I would just move into the woods. I would just leave. <laughs> I would just leave and just escape and, if I could. But yeah, it's just a, it's a hard question to answer. Like, how would we handle that? Yeah. Um, Sarah, you talked about the first contact being something we create in a lab, mm -hmm. a kind of a, an alien life. A very big lab. A very big lot. Talk to me a little bit about what that would look like and what that would be different than the science we're, we're doing now. Yeah, so I think the question of understanding, so I appreciate the idea of like trying to use um, past human encounters as an analogy for alien life, but I think that we really don't understand the sense of otherness of what alien life could be. And I don't think that we even have the possibility space to imagine that until we actually understand what life is which requires solving the origin of life. And to be able to do that, um, you have to build an experiment that can do a search in chemical space. Like imagine you, know, you do a Google search and you search huge volumes of data, but you actually have to build an experiment to look for alien life. Um, and I think we can do that, but I think you know, understanding the principles of how life emerges in that context will tell us about what the possibilities are in the universe. Would that look like a kind of experiment done on Earth, though, would that look like Earth life as opposed no, to looking like? No, it could be like totally different. Yeah, totally different. It's a it's a completely different origin, right? So it's a little like we build, you know, particle accelerators to simulate the Big Bang. We need to build planet simulators to simulate what origins of life on a planet could be like, and the chemistry could be totally different. The technology that emerges on another planet could be totally different. The minds could be totally different. We don't know the space. Sherry, I think of one of the jobs of science fiction as to sort of imagine all the different ways that this could happen, all the different ways to talk with uh, uh, an alien visitor or a different between two species. As you're a reader, an editor of current day science fiction, how good a job is our culture at imagining these things right now, would you say? Are we, oh. are our authors <laughs> coming up with some interesting stuff? I think it's been some fascinating um, extrapolation. That's what science fiction writers do. They take a question, ask what if, and then they follow it like a scientist to all the possibilities, right? And between like stories like um, the story of your life, Ted Chang, which they made the movie Arrival, or of course, you know, Contact by Carl Sagan, or even Dawn by Octavia E. Butler. We've had so many different imaginings of what that would look like and how humanity would respond to it. So we have lots of possibilities, lots of examples of what not to do, <laughs> and maybe some possibilities of how we can collaborate to really bring all the resources together so that we could, you know, try to understand it or communicate even. Yeah. So the how how big a problem is communication going to be? Like, you know, there's a kind of 
science fiction trope where they come with babble fish that we can all stick in our ear and then we can instantly uh, speak to the alien visitors. But if they're sending a message to us, would, is there any reason to, under, to believe that we could understand it, to recognize it as a message? Corey, can you start with that? Yeah, that, yeah that's a hard one. Uh, as far as language, I mean, it's hard for us to understand each other even if we speak the same language sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, with that said, I mean, I think, yeah, from the movie The Arrival, I mean, I think that's an awesome, that's one of my favorite movies too. And just the, the way that they took that to, to extremes as far as using linguistics to, to just follow the steps of communicating with the, the, the aliens in that movie were, was amazing. Do we have that? Can we do that? I'm, I'm not sure. If as you're someone who studies galaxies, black holes, thousands, you know, hard to under, uh, conceive of how far away. Mm-hmm. But would we have a message that would come to us a thousand years before someone arrives here? Is that possible? I think Sarah would might know better than that. I mean, uh, there's well, both will weigh in either yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, radio signals, I mean, that's one way we look at ways of uh, receiving any kind of information from other cultures or civilizations. Uh, LIGO would not be able to do that, right. though. This is, the science of LIGO involves uh, violent, strong gravity events. So th- these civilizations would need to have the power to move black holes and smash them into each other. So I get a lot of questions about that. Uh, we can't communicate with aliens with LIGO. That's good. But yeah, radio waves, I think, is one of the a primary one. Like the, That's what SETI uses primarily. Sarah, what do you think about that? Would, I mean, you, you, from your perspective, we're going to find in a lab or or maybe on an uh, asteroid some other piece of life, right? That's what the first contact would look like. It will be some small cell organism or something like that, right? Uh, it, it could be intelligent life. Um, not in the lab. I mean, I think we'd start small. <laughs> uh, yeah, please but, do not yeah. create the intelligent <laughs> no, life. No, that's not the idea, but I think, I think what I... What I I'm advocating for is understanding what we are in order to recognize ourselves in the universe. And I think the problem we have right now is because we don't understand what life is, we can't recognize alien life. And I think it's a large misconception to assume that even if they were communicating with us, we would be able to recognize the signals because as you were saying, it's hard enough to communicate with another human that speaks your own language. Mm-hmm. But you know, somebody that doesn't speak your own your native language is even harder, and obviously we have a hard time with things that are even more distant in our evolutionary past, like, you know, that are smart, like octopus or things like that. So I think this idea of, you know, going back in the history and looking how far apart your origin events are is really critical to understanding how effectively we can communicate. And alien is very alien. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shuri, what's the most interesting story that you've edited or read or worked with on alien communication between two alien species? I haven't actually worked on any stories like that um, that are dealing with two different aliens. Mm -hmm. The things I'm most familiar with are some of the classics, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a story that has fascinated us since, I guess, since we started, you know, thinking about science fiction or since we started conceiving that there are other 
planets, planets outside of one that we're living on, right? So it's a very ancient concept, this first concept thing. And the thing that kind of connects it is this desire for humans to be better than what we are. Because think about it, if we actually are able to communicate or to finally recognize what life is and to be able to communicate with it, so much of what we take as reality is going to change. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to change. Just the concept of where we are in the universe and where we are in relation to, to each other. So a lot of the science fiction stories that I love most are taking that, that meeting ground mm -hmm. of, okay, so we do interact with these other beings. How do they help us understand more of what it means to be human? How does it help us to create other solutions and tools to be better so that we can even get to a point where we are worthy of being in contact with some other forces? You know, because like you said, if, if they're going to be able to contact us, we're going to be probably like as interesting to them as ants. But then we know that there are some people on the planet who love ants, yeah. who study them <laughs> constantly. You know, we might need other species to be able to communicate with other forms. And that's the fun thing I love about mm -hmm. fiction, that um, even though we have these old stories, there's always someone that's going to come up with a whole nother angle on it. Um, but most of the science fiction today is um, moving past this concept of if they're out there, mm -hmm. but is how are we actually going to change in the meeting? So mm -hmm. let, let's take that and let's have Sarah and Corey react to that. It is true, it seems, in science fiction writing or and movies that the first contact brings out a better human we unite together, we work together, we, you know, um, you know. I, but is that at all realistic to think? Wouldn't it also be realistic to think that like any external force in society today divides us? I mean, what's the, wh where's this positivity coming from? I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, where is it coming from? <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's the, the, that whole idea of where your mindset is or where you're coming from. Um, I like to, to see positivity, even though this world can be kind of a negative to, uh, place to be, especially now. Um, but I, I still think that contact with alien life could be something we need. It could yeah. be something that helps us. It could be something that makes things better. But this is me being a hippie, I think. <laughs> so I don't even know if I should even be thinking that. But it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's a hard question. I, I, I think I, I do have the optimistic kind of mentality for it, I guess. Sarah, what do you make of that? Or do you I'm have optimism? I'm also in the hippie optimistic club. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but, I, but in all seriousness, I think a lot of the discussion that we're having globally on the phenomena of alien is in some sense preparing us culturally for what first contact might be like. So I think it's important to pay attention to the narratives that we tell ourselves, which is why storytelling is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it looks to me like we're trying to make sense of a phenomena we don't understand and we try to regularize it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're hopeful that it might lead to positive transformative change, which is why the narratives tend to be positive. And I think that's suggesting that we have a deep need to understand ourselves because we want to see ourselves. What do we look like mm -hmm. from the outside? I mean, science fiction has been a good way to sort of or ways that authors have looked at humans, right, mm -hmm. as much as they have looked at aliens. As a scientist, 
looking as a, I'm asking you as a science to be a cultural critic. Are we imaginative enough in our fiction and our you know movies and culture about what alien life would look like or how it would interact with us or is it beyond our Im imagination as humans? My short answer is no, we're not imaginative enough because if we were, we would have solved the problem already. But it doesn't mean we can't be imaginative mm -hmm. enough. But I think the, the real problem is asking the right questions and thinking about the phenomena the right way. And I think right now, you know, a lot of people are kind of focused on this idea of alien as other, mm -hmm. something not to be understood as a, you know, I see some phenomenon, I can't explain it, therefore it's a UFO, therefore it's aliens. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to look at alien as an, a universal understanding of what life is in the universe, and we ask the question from that perspective, what kind of questions do we ask and what kind of answers do we get? And then can we explain the varied phenomena that people might associate with alien? Um, and I think it's just a much more constructive way of doing it, and I think, I think there's a lot of ways of contributing to that kind of understanding, but I think we're just at the precipice of even being able to ask the question in a meaningful way and develop a deeper understanding of what that would look like. The, I will confess to being a bit of a pessimist on the <laughs> alien visitation. There's one in every crowd. <laughs> but I'm going to ask another question to indulge your positive vibes. Um, and so let's say we get the, you know, pointy-eared, Mavens of logic from Vulcan coming down as our <laughs> first visitors. Like you know, like kindly <laughs> aliens offering us amazing advanced technology. Um, what do we need to do to make sure we use it responsibly? Could we even be trusted with it? Wouldn't we make a mess of that too? Like, you know, and should. Shouldn't we have to solve our own problems here first? Like, you know, is it just a fantasy to have somebody come solve our problems? Yes. Shuri, what do you think? Um, I think that's, <laughs> I think it's going to be needed. And, and my grandmother would say, you need Jesus. <laughs> and I just replaced that with aliens. <laughs> you need aliens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would need some type of divine or extraordinary force that would know to give us a tool that we cannot mess up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It would have mm -hmm. to be human proof. <laughs> human proof it so that we, we are successful. Um, it, it's a part of uh, this ideal that we don't want to be the meat, right? So, you know, to serve mm -hmm. man. Yeah, you yeah. Ever watch mm -hmm. that amazing episode <laughs> of Twilight Zone. We don't want to, that to happen, right? So we want this kind of benevolent force that comes, that understands us, that has studied us long enough to, to see our weaknesses and to anticipate them so that when it comes, it, it is able to help us reach for those better selves, mm -hmm. you know? But yeah. 
I could jump in with just being pessimistic. Please. I mean, mainly for uh, this, this event, I was wondering uh, why me? Like, why would I be asked to be up here? And so I asked my family members like this question about what they thought of it. All of them were pessimistic. Yeah. The, my brother, he's a natural pessimistic person. He says, we just have to bend over and it's gonna, we're, we're done. We're, like, we're gonna, we won't even have a chance. Uh, my uncle said, we need to put every virus we can inside of our bodies so we would be protected or uh, we would have that as uh, weapons against any kind of visitors. And I mean, they're creative. I mean, or he was, I mean, but yeah, those are very negative things to, uh, to do. But I guess they're just thinking of what we would be up against in a negative way, like the negative re reaction, interaction. I mean. But I feel like we've been primed for that with a lot of the science fiction yeah. movies that are like marshalling our military strength or you know, forces to try to defend ourselves against, you know, what we assume will be a colonial alien force, right? Because so much of human existence that's written at least has been a colonial experience around the world, right? So we assume, we're projecting, right? Mm -hmm. That this unknown life out there would have the same mission and the same objectives and values. Um, so mm -hmm. there's that. <laughs> Hopefully not, but yeah. And Sarah, are we sort of projecting when we think of uh, a first contact, uh, alien visitation in, in these human terms, or is there value in our Earth experience and, and, and projecting that in our sort of science fiction and our writing? I would say yes to both of those. I think we are projecting, but I think there is value in it in the same way that it's always been valuable that we told ourselves myths about how the universe works to, you know, we tell ourselves stories to try to understand things we don't. And I think a lot of, and this, again, this is why storytelling is so important mm -hmm. in this domain, because it's helping us understand even what kinds of questions we're asking. And I just, I don't, I don't feel like the aliens are anything like us if they exist, and I don't feel like they're gonna be our savior. I think what we are doing is progressing in our knowledge as a biosphere and now a technosphere, and we're acquiring a better understanding of how the world works, and eventually, as a planet evolves, that's a living planet, it comes to understand the phenomena it is. Um, and when you think about it from that perspective, there's some natural transitions there, uh, and it's, you know, it's, we're asking lots of questions that are important for us to be asking at this point in history. Does the science fiction ever get in the way of the science? Does it cause problems for scientists explaining what they're doing because there's too much assumptions of pointy-eared folks from Vulcan as opposed to? No, I think, I don't, I don't think it gets in the way at all. I think the one thing that I think people really, it would be helpful if it was understood more generally is how artistic the boundaries of science are and how creative you have to be and how much imagination you have to have. And so when you're actually trying to think about how reality works in ways that people don't know, like to think about what aliens are, that's an incredibly creative enterprise. And therefore you have to interact with people like science fiction writers who are naturally creative. And sometimes you find more enriching ways of discussing things with them than you would with fellow scientists because you know people get siloed in their disciplines. So you have to find the people that are visionaries and thinking about what the future could look like. And then we have to build a way to get to the future, which is what science helps us do. Sheree, how much does science influence science fiction? Is, is it injecting new ideas into the way 
writers are thinking and writing about this, or do you feel like it proceeds on, on separate tracks? Um, it's like a, it's a wonderful creative well. Um, for people who write science fiction, that's just science that's based on sciences. Um, it is a symbiotic relationship, you know. Some of our earliest science fiction writers were a part of the science community. Um, when we were thinking about um, having, you know, ray guns and things like that, you know, they were working on some of the early, you know, um, moon um, exploration and things like that. So a lot of science fiction writers read scientific studies, they subscribe to the journals, they have relationships. We were talking about it earlier. They have relationships with actual scientists. They have favorite, you know, scientists and biologists, mm -hmm. and they can name them. Um, people who sometimes serve as beta readers for ideals that they're exploring. So there's a very strong synergy. And some of them, like Charles Sheffield and others, um, were scientists and science fiction writers as well. So, yeah. Corey, do hmm. scientists who spend the, their time doing sort of hard science and measurements, do they still, do they get, do they enjoy science fiction or do they just get annoyed because it couldn't possibly work this way? What's your personal view on that? <laughs> they hate science fiction. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. No, I mean, I mean, a lot of my colleagues are totally uh, fans of sci-fi. Uh, a lot of them uh, bring it to in with the work that they do. Uh, it inspired me as a kid. I mean, it, it inspires that wonder as, as young people, I think, that uh, science fiction. It's just a, a huge thing for, for catapulting people who are wanting, who are curious, I think. I grew up just an hour east of here, and I remember me and my, my friend, we uh, watched some movie, and we wanted to make contact. <laughs> so, so we drove up toward the Cajon Pass and totally middle of the night. And we're just looking up at the sky, screaming at the aliens to come get us. But it didn't happen. <laughs> but I mean, so it, I think it's just, it's that thing that uh, it just helps with the curiosity. It, uh, science is the outlet to, to follow that path that comes from sci-fi and stories, I think. So as an intelligence reporter for the New York Times, I frequently have to report about the unexplained phenomenon, <laughs> the, the sightings that some people think could be otherworldly visitors to, uh, to aircraft carriers around the world. Um, I, I remain a, a skeptic. I'm, as I, I'm fond of saying, I'm more Scully than Mulder. <laughs> um, but for this question, I want to pose, uh, want to make the supposition that I'm wrong and that, that could there be um, something to the sightings that Americans have been making over the last 70 years about, uh, you know, flying saucers uh, above their homes or above their aircraft carriers. Is there any possibility that we're being watched right now uh, by some alien race that's following a prime directive of non-interference? Or is that just hogwash? Sarah? I wouldn't say it's hogwash. I think um, I think there's a lot of questions you have to ask, like why here, why now, why centered in the United States. So there's like a very culturally specific phenomena happening yeah. there, and I think um, I think 
that's very perplexing just as a perspective of like, why would aliens in our four billion year history decide to visit the United States with you know, rapid succession for the last 70 years? There's just not like a consistent narrative there. But, um, but I think the, the, the more interesting feature of it to me is, is again to this idea of anomalies. So people have these experiences and they want to explain it as aliens. But there's not a regularizable kind of, what I mean is there's not an explanation that everyone can share. It's not common knowledge what this phenomena is. And I think people don't, it, it's sort of, to me, the most interesting things that humanity has built over our long history, our knowledge that's actually shareable and becomes culturally transmissible and actually allows us to, to like I said, build the future. And right now, aliens are just kind of their noise in, in the background of a lot of people talking about things. And there tends to be a lot of, um, you know, frustration that that's not being recognized, but it's not recognized as a phenomena everyone can share and understand. And I, and I think when you make scientific progress, that's what it is. Everybody understands what gravity is mm -hmm. because we understand the principles of gravitation. It wasn't always the case. We saw planetary motion. It looks bizarre. It looks like there's, you know, maybe there's spirits moving balls around the heavens or something. But, um, but now we understand more about that phenomena. We might not have a final answer, but we understand more about what gravity is. And I think life will be the same. And so people are having these experiences and we shouldn't devalue that they feel like they, they're, they're making contact. And we think we should value everyone's story, but I think what we need to build is stories humanity can tell itself in the future that are global stories. Hmm. Corey. I wish I had one of those experiences. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Corey, is there any possibility we're being watched and only a few uh, folks are lucky enough to <laughs> I'm not going to say no, but I, yeah, I mean, I guess I would need to say, have some data. I need to have some evidence, I guess, to, to really answer that question, I guess. But maybe they're, they're sneaky enough to, to be able to hide that, though. <laughs> Sherry, why, why do we like these, why are we fascinated by these stories, or why do we, when we, there's a video of something unexplained over a Navy ship, why do seven million people read that story? <laughs> I think because humans love the sense of wonder. That is the whole purpose of science fiction, is to create a sense of wonder in the world. And so we're, we're like you spoke about curiosity. We're deeply curious as a species, and other life forms on Earth are deeply curious as well, right? Um, but we also want to connect with something I feel is greater. And I just want to speak for the people on the planet who have believe that they've already had contact with other forces. I think of the Dogon of Mali, um, the Cliffs of Mali, who had information about Sirius Dog Star before the invention of the te you know, telescope. Where did they get this information from? You can't really see it with your naked eye. And why do they have a ritual that, is, that commemorates the, its arrival um, every, what, 60 years or however so it is? Who are they and their whole cosmology? is about having a contact, right? And they have never forgotten it. So there are lots of people around the world who already believe that they've been hmm. in touch with something um, that's extraplanetary, right? And it sometimes reads as a spiritual belief or mm -hmm. a religious belief, you know? And we know that science, there's a, a, a narrow line between what was science. Yes, it's a deep thing. <laughs> and what was magic, mm -hmm. you know, or, her or heresy even, yeah. right? Um, but it's I just, I don't know, it's just a sense of being a part of life and also people creating life and watching life flourish around us. And we want to believe that in that darkness, there is something, whether that darkness is the ocean, 
deep in the ocean, like the abyss, mm -hmm. um, or if it's in the sky, we want to believe that we're not alone. So that's a good segue to another question I wanted to ask, which would swing to the opposite pole, which is we've spent a lot of energy looking for signs of other civilizations in the stars and not found them. We have not found radio transmissions or messages or, or other um, examples of intelligence life out there. And we've been sending out some, some messages. Is it possible that we are alone in this world when it comes to intelligent life as, we're, as we kind of know it? Not necessarily alone in terms of you know, molecules that look like life, but as in terms of creatures that can communicate. Is, um, is that possible? Sarah, I'm gonna start with you again. Yes, it's possible. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people want to make uh, speculations that surely the universe is so large there must be alien life out there somewhere. Uh, but based on what we know, you know, evidence from life on Earth, we know of entirely one planet that ever had an original life event happen. And we don't understand how that happened, and therefore we can't extrapolate beyond our planet to actually say this is a common phenomenon in the universe. It could be the rarest thing that ever happens. Corey, what do you, what do you think? Is, is, uh, do you ever contemplate that we are alone in this universe? Um, yeah, I'm one of those who speculate the universe is so big that probability-wise there must be many other uh, planets that could possibly have similar uh, ingredients to make life similar to Earth. Um, but, yeah, so... I, I, I want to share one story with my work is that uh, one way we explain the way these signals pass through the universe is that a gravitational wave signal eventually went through the Earth and we recorded it with our detectors. But before it got here, it probably passed through many other civilizations as well. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that th the optimist might think who thinks about mm -hmm. extraterrestrial life. But uh, that's just something I thought of yeah. while, while you were talking. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm hopeful they're there, but yeah. I can't say they are. Yeah. But if they were powerful enough to shape that gravitational wave to add a little hello to us, then <laughs> that would be uh, pretty advanced, I suppose. That would be a big story. That'd be a, yeah, a big announcement. <laughs> sure. What do you think? Do you ever contemplate that we may be alone in this world, or do you assume that there is some other civilization out there? definitely think that sometimes we're alone. It certainly mm -hmm. feels like that, right? Um, a lot of the time. But I'm one of the people that think that it's already here and it's mm -hmm. just moved on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because think about it, like if, if we thought of aliens as anthropologists, right? Um, and not the original purpose of anthropology, right? Not to necessarily observe and break down and destroy, but to observe only, right? To record. Um, it's, it's the novelty of it. Like why, like when would, would, you, when would you record, what, what would be worth recording of mm -hmm. us as humans? Mm -hmm. And what would, you, what would they take from it, you know? And would there, be a, would there be a demand to have a communication with us necessarily? Like why would they need to engage with us? Um, I question that sometimes, mm -hmm. you know? 
Do you think that if we became the spacefaring people of the universe that, and we encountered a, another planet, would we have the discipline to observe only and not interfere? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> we, have not we have not demonstrated that discipline yet. <laughs> and none of our, our horror science fiction movies seem to anticipate that. Like, I'm thinking, um, what was the movie that had the, the, the giants, I call it the space um, uh, roach trap. <laughs> like, if you, if you entered, if the ship entered that space, they knew that you made it, like, you had made it to them and then they shut you down <laughs> so that you wouldn't go any further. I can't, someone, oh, I know wow. someone out there virtually will know the movie I'm speaking of. But, I worry about that sometimes, you know, if we're, because think about it, we have so much space junk out there right now, floating <laughs> around, just floating around mm -hmm. in space. And if we're able to colonize and terraform some other planet, which is another great theme in science fiction that people love, love writing about, are we just going to impose the same challenges on another planet or another asteroid belt or whatever mm -hmm. that we have here? I, I would hope that, we, that the new technology and growth means that we're gonna be more responsible. Yeah, I always wonder if people want to fly to Mars and terraform Mars into making it look like Earth. And I'm always like, well, why are you going to go and Mars is Mars, leave it alone. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and why do you need to abandon this planet? You know, let's. Yeah, uh, is it going to be like Hilton Head? <laughs> like, we're going to go <laughs> be golfing on Mars. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Mars kind of looks like. Earth after the climate disaster, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, before I go to the audience questions, which I'm going to do shortly, um, oh, very shortly, I want to ask this, I want to say, like, discussing aliens is, is totally fun. Um, and I love doing it. But another Scully-type question. If, is there a danger by suggesting that aliens are real? Are we enabling conspiracy theories on Earth? And the last several years have shown that as Americans, we can't really handle the fun conspiracy theories. They, they go to dark, irrational places quickly. And how do we think think about aliens without going all Mulder, without going all government conspiracy. How do we think about and talk about these things in a, a, in a way that doesn't undermine our society and democracy, but does what science fiction wants to do, solve the big questions of humanity? Um, Sherry, what do you think about that? That's a tough question. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're asking, how do we do something for humans that, and then have them not behave like humans? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that was a joke in the science fiction community was right when the pandemic started. Um, all we had all these novels, right? And um, the responses for humans in a, in a uh, pandemic situation were to, to trust science to follow 
<laughs> the suggestions of scientists and to follow the rules for the most part. And we're like, mm, gotta change a whole lot of books now, right? Because there's gonna be a large contingent of people who are going to def you know, feel very differently mm. about whatever mm. is happening. And it's not gonna be so easy to legislate or to coordinate humans to, to move in a certain direction. Mm. So I feel like already we're changing the way that we think about things. Um, in terms of the creative part of it, the, the extrapolation, the fun part, the world building part of it, because now we have a little more data about how humans respond. But when you go back and think about other pandemics, like the yellow fever epidemic, there were blues songs that actually sang about the same issues that we were facing during the COVID pandemic in the early mm -hmm. days of the quarantine, that people didn't want to stop going to school, that people mm -hmm. didn't want to, um, they didn't want to follow any of the rules. There's literally blues songs about that. Um, so it seems like humans are going to be humans no matter what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Corey or Sarah, anything to add? I think it would be helpful if we could embrace the unknown as the unknown and just say we don't know. Um, I think there's always a tendency when there's an unknown phenomena for someone to come in and claim explanation or claim control over the narrative. And I don't think that we openly, as a society, um, are willing to publicly have like cultural discourse about things we don't understand. And the big questions are all about the fact we don't understand and we have to talk about these things to answer them. This has always been true throughout human history and most of the problems are solved through dialogue. Science is, is built on dialogue between different people thinking about the same problem. And so I think, I think embracing the uncertainty and having open discussions where people can air what they think about it and actually accept there's no answer would be very helpful. Excellent. Okay, let's hear from the audience. If you have a question, you can come line up here by the microphone. I'm going to get us started with a question that was submitted online. Someone asked if the James Webb Space Telescope discovered techno signatures like a Dyson sphere, how would the scientific community proceed with disclosing it to the general public? Corey, do you uh, want to? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so um, so I, I think what we would do is say that there's an anomaly that we don't understand. And this actually even happened before with Tabby's star, which was a star that had some irregularities in its uh, spectral signature. And people thought maybe there was some alien megastructure around the star. Um, it takes a long time to process data and actually have you know, come to understand what the phenomena is. So I think scientists are, in general, pretty open when they have data sets they can't explain. Thank you. All right, so let's go to our first audience member. You can come up here into the light. Thank you. Hi there. Um, my question is kind of two parts, um, so forgive me if I take a long time. But um, I feel like we need to start making a distinction between the concept of alien versus the concept of extraterrestrial. Because as you mentioned before, too, um, there is coming to a point now where we're encountering other forms of intelligence here on Earth, AI, um, for example. And then also I think back to um, Ted Chiang's uh, The Great Silence, where parrots in the rainforest were contemplating the Arecibo telescope, wondering why humanity is looking elsewhere for intelligent life when they're right there waiting mm -hmm. to be communicated to. So um, just wanted to see what your thoughts about that are. Did, 
you know, even here, even among humans, we think of immigrants as aliens sometimes. So I feel like there needs to be that distinction between alien, now non-human versus extraterrestrial. And then um, when I first found out about this panel, immediately I thought about the science fiction work, The Left Hand of Darkness, mm -hmm. which um, as we all know, has a lot of layers to first contact and how humanity and how um, humans deal with both the political and socioeconomic and then also just dealing with um, different ways of being human. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. And me as a politician, it's really interesting to, under to contemplate how we should, in terms of politically, deal with other intelligent lives, you know, treaties, or if we make a federation, or how do we decide um, laws governing different species and different ways of thinking. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Cherie, do you want to start with that? And then yeah, I absolutely love Ursula K. Le Guin. So thank you so much for, for mentioning her amazing work. I had a chance to study with her out in the Mallory Field Station <laughs> under, I think, the second darkest sky in the country at the time. Um, for, I just think that we, we talk about these things and we don't include ancient indigenous knowledge as a part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. There are peoples who are live on the planet right now who already recognize um, non-human mm -hmm. life as um, sentient, as autonomous, and as sacred. Um, in, um, in parts of Africa, they um, have determined that a tree is a person, right? And have created legislation to protect that tree, to keep it from being cut down, unlike some of the redwoods that are being cut down in California, um, unlike some of the um, cousins of the redwoods in Mississippi that are, have fallen as well. So there are people who already maintain these values. We just don't listen to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we don't often um, have them seated at the table of power to help us and inform us on, on some of the world-changing decisions that are being made, mostly out of corporate interests. So once we start bringing back that wisdom into the rooms where power is being discussed and where decisions are being made, we will have different kinds of conversations and different results. But we're, at this sense, there are people who have those answers right now. Anyone want to add anything, or should we grab another question? We'll grab another question. All right. Hi, I'm uh, Philip. Um, my, uh, I guess my question is this idea of first contact is actually a very broad idea that can encompass a lot of very different things. And it feels like it's maybe more helpful to partition this into maybe several different, uh, different component ideas. Like, for instance, uh, one type of first contact might just be finding uh, biosignatures in the, uh, in the ocean Enceladus of bacteria. Um, which is very different than finding you know, green aliens with, with uh, pointy ears or whatever that land in your front porch. Um, can you speak a little bit about uh, you know, how one might uh, respond to these, uh, or I mean, how one might want to categorize these diff very different types of events? It almost feels like these are almost completely different topics. Or do we want to just focus on perhaps first contact of sentient type beings. Sarah, I feel that's a question for you. What do you think? Because it seems like it was going to your point a little bit about 
thinking about these in different ways and the first contact yeah. being with a you know strange protein string in a, in a well I, I think lab. it's a bit subjective because in some sense and it's an excellent question it's asking what do we value in making contact with alien life and different cultures and different people might have different values so many people might only care if it's intelligent life and not care if the universe is populated with microbes everywhere who cares there's nothing else like us and other people might be satisfied at the level of understanding we gain by studying microbes. For me, because of the sort of level I think about things and I'm really more interested in just the phenomena of life broadly, I think all of those things will effectively contribute to answering the same question. So I see them as the same thing, but that doesn't mean that everybody shares that value. Um. All right, let's take the next question. Uh, hi, my name is Daniel Naya. Uh, I have two questions, actually. They're pretty short. Uh, the first is, I'm sure you've heard of a fine, famous um, Chinese science fiction trilogy called The uh, Three-Body Problem. Um, I don't know if I missed it, and you discussed it earlier. But in it, they um, advance this theory that if there are aliens, if there are extraterrestrials, intelligent, sentient aliens, that they would be hostile, that it's, it's safe to logically conclude that they would be hostile. I, I don't know if you've discussed this already. But um, you know, I'd just be curious to know you all's take on, on the idea that um, if there are aliens and if we do discover them, we should hide or run away. <laughs> the, 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 this, and that's what it says in the novel, in the novels. But, um, and they do come for us, actually, in the novel. But um, the second question is, um, I'd like you to discuss um, you all's uh, thoughts about the impact on organized religion in our society um, if, if we do discover uh, sentient extraterrestrial life um, because, um, I mean, some religions like H Hindu and Buddhist acknowledge the possibility of life on other worlds, but uh, Christianity um, and Judaism certainly don't. Um, you know, um, I, I think it would have like a shattering impact, particularly on Christianity, if we did discover mm -hmm. sentient life on, on, on another planet. So um, I'm just curious about your thoughts on those two topics. Thank you. On the first question, the Blackfoot experience has told us, right, that we should hide, right? Clearly, I think. Is that right, Corey? That's my experience, not my tribe's experience. <laughs> so yeah, but I would hide, yeah, definitely. I've not read that book, though. Did, is anybody? Yes, it's, um, it. I, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, so please forgive me. It's um, Chuzan Lee, um, Lu, excuse me, um, C-I-X-U, um, I-N, right? Yes, yes, thank you. And it was translated by Ken Liu. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic novel. Not very optimistic. <laughs> the second question on the effect on religions. Sherry, what do you think about that? Um, we already have um, world religions, or not world religions, we have religions that are, um, that say their roots are in the stars. Um, we're in California, so you already know we're in the land of the Scientologists. Um, Nation of Islam also has a very interesting origin story um, that involves um, a scientist, I'll just say that. Um, and so um, I think that, um, like I said, there's a, there's a, a line between the uh, spiritual mm -hmm. practice and spiritual beliefs and, and science, and that there are those who don't see there being a line at all, and that they're very much the same the same community, the same form. It's just that rather than us, it's a matter of semantics, I guess, mm -hmm. of what we're speaking about. Mm -hmm. um, 
Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. Bianca. All right, we're going to move on to the next question. Julian, this is for you. Name's Nelson. Your colleagues at the New York Times obviously changed the game five years ago by putting that front page story about Commander Fravor and the USS Nimitz. Okay. <laughs> and since then, it, it, you know, to have a story like that on the front page of the New York Times, where now it was a respected publication and it kind of gave license to the the you know, the Luis Elizondos and the Bob Lazars and whatnot to uh, start speaking about their experiences and whatnot. Do you sense that there's this gradual assimilation of credible discussion, discourse about, you know, the unknown of UFOs and whatnot that is uh, preparing the general public to say, hey, we need to start looking at this? Uh, that's a super good qu question, excellent question. Um, I feel like the US government had a very strange way that it started uh, accumulating information about these things. It was not taken seriously by the broad scope of the government. It became uh, a section of intense interest by a small group within the Pentagon. Um, it got some resources, but they didn't, it was a kind of mystery that they didn't put all their resources into answering. And then when they started to put more resources into it, it it ran into issues of classification of around purely terrestrial things, which are military secrets and how military cameras work. And, and all these things led the US government to be less than clear with the public. And I think that is the great failing around uh, these these UAP reports that they, the government has not been forthright enough. They've not been clear enough, and that has allowed um, some speculation to to emerge. And and I think that if you look at the process of the reporting over the years, we are moving much slower to uh, explanation than we ought to have been, and that is because of this some of this. Some of the secrecy may be needed, and some of it is, is problematic. All right, this is the last question we have time for, but if you have a question for our panelists, please stick around for the reception, and they'll be available to chat with you then. All right. Hi, my name is Deborah. Thank you so much. This has been truly fascinating. This is a question for Sarah. You were talking about uh, an origin of life event, and my question is for other Earth-like planets out there that are in the Goldilocks zone that have the same kinds of conditions that Earth has, why wouldn't um, an origin of life event be inevitable? Is it possible we are a freak accident then? Um, I hope we're not, and obviously by virtue of the fact that I'm interested in whether there are universal laws that describe what life is, so some universal principles, my hope is 
we might learn them on Earth and be able to apply them to other places in the cosmos, just like we learn the laws of physics and understand what powers stars. Um, so I'm hopeful that we can figure it out, but I wouldn't say that necessarily uh, every Earth-like planet will give rise to Earth-like life or any life. It might be rarer than that because we don't know the exact circumstances and we don't know how long it takes, we don't know how much stuff it takes, how much diversity of chemistries on the on a planet. And a lot of people even think about the origin of life being a local thing, like it happens in a geochemical vent somewhere, but it might be a planetary scale phenomena and requires mixing over different geochemical time scales um, in the same sense that technological transitions require technology mixing over different time scales for globalization. So, um, so I think there's just a lot we don't know. We're out of time, so I want to thank you all for your excellent conversation. It's been an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank everyone in the audience tonight. Um, you'll be able to find a summary of our talk at zocalopublicsquare.com by tomorrow, plus interviews with our panel members. Please do subscribe to the Zocalo newsletter and podcast for more great conversations, and follow us on social media. Everyone, please stay for the reception to meet each other and continue the conversation. Sarah, Corey, Sherry, thank you again for a fantastic uh, conversation. Everyone, give them a round of applause.